This winter, our community groups studied through the book of Mark together. It was uh, refreshing. It was refreshing for me. I think it was refreshing for our group to go through a gospel account again, to see Jesus again. Um, Mark's gospel, if you were with us in the study, you remember it starts quickly, right? It starts quickly right out of the gate. We don't have a genealogy or a birth narrative, but immediately it jumps into the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus himself. Uh, And immediately we see Jesus doing wonderful things. And he is baptized, and the voice of the Father speaks from heaven, and the Spirit descends like a dove. Then immediately he goes out in the wilderness and is tempted. And immediately he is uh, calling his disciples, and immediately he is beginning to heal the sick and preach the good news. And immediately, Mark continues to use this term immediately, over and over again, almost to the point where it's annoying. But immediately he moves the narrative through the life of Christ. Um, Right in the very first verse of the book, we see uh, Mark's overarching theme, his overarching emphasis. He says, in the uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we get through Jesus' ministry, we get to Mark 8. And we see a climax here, we see a turning point. We see Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus then shows Peter, James, and John his glory. He is transfigured before them. And we hear the Father again say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Jesus then, in the second half of the book, begins to speak about his pending death. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. A few chapters later, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. After three days, he will rise. This is the backdrop for the events of Friday. Jesus has foretold of his death. Thursday night, we begin to see these events Unfold. Pastor Doug read Christ's prayer, asking the Father to remove this cup from him, even as he remained subject to the will of the Father. Pastor, Pastor Richard read of Jesus' account before the council as they accused him of blasphemy. The Jewish leaders did not have the authority to execute Jesus for blasphemy, so, so they end up taking a different approach. They then bring him before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and this is where we're going to pick up the narrative this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to Mark 15. We're going to start in verse 1. Mark 15. Here it says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. May God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, and sufficient word. On this Friday, we gather as God's people to reflect upon the events surrounding Jesus' death. It is not just the events themselves but the eternal significance that these events have on our individual lives, on our, on our corporate life 
as God's people and, and even on the entire world. It is only because of what happened on Good Friday that we can have any hope approaching a perfect and holy God. So it is with great sobriety that we, are, we, re, we reflect not just on what happened, but on why it happened. Mark 15, we see an unjust trial against the perfect king. We see a sinner set free, and we see the wrath of God satisfied. Um, this first section, the first five verses, are marked by silence. The first section is marked by silence, verses 1 through 5. Jesus has been dragged before Pilate. The guards have beaten him. He is alone. He has been abandoned by his disciples. And he is facing a trial where if he is found guilty, the penalty is crucifixion. It is death by crucifixion. The, tree, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, they've all been plotting against him. We've read this throughout the book of Mark. They've been plotting against him. They've been orchestrating this. They got one of his own disciples to betray him. And they bring him before an authority who has the ability to carry out their sentence that they desire. So they bring up false charges against him. We read earlier that they were uh, confused in their false accusations, but now they bring up a different charge before Pilate. In verse 2, Pilate asks him, Are you king of the Jews? This is not the charge that they brought up against him in chapter 14. Right When they bring him to Pilate, they tell him he is saying he is king of the Jews. In chapter 14, it was because Jesus claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus answered them in chapter 14 by saying, I am. This is a clear reference to Exodus 3, where Yahweh used this same language to describe himself. And then he goes on to say, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is the reason they wanted to kill him. This was the real charge they wanted to bring against Jesus, but they knew that that would not get Rome upset. What would get Rome upset, what would make them angry, what would uh, cause them to give them a, a, a sentence that would result in execution was something different. They would tell Pilate that Jesus declared himself to be king of the Jews. This is a charge they are hoping to stick, something that, that Rome would agree is a problem. Right? So this is, of course, a loaded charge. Right? So on one hand, Jesus is, in fact, king of the Jews. Right? This is true. He is king. He is the king. He is the king that rules and reigns over everything. But his kingdom is not limited to Rome. His kingdom is, in fact, the entire world. Jesus was not a king in the sense that Roman rulers would really care about. He was not there to kick against the government. He was not there to raise up an insurrection against the Roman government to try and overthrow rulers and set up an earthly empire. His kingdom is much bigger than that. So yes, on one hand, it's true. They bring the charge, you are king of the Jews. On one hand, it is true. He is king of the Jews. On the other hand, this charge is a lie. Right? They are being deceptive in the way that they are bringing this charge. Parents of children can relate to this, right? You say things in one way that's shaded. If a child comes to you and something has gone terribly wrong and you want to know the truth about something, you ask for their version of the story. And when they tell you the story, often you get a shaded, biased, half-truth. Technically, maybe it's true, but as you press further, it unravels. It's not, it's not the true truth. What they have said is technically true, 
but the conclusion you draw is totally different than if you had gotten all of the facts. Um, this is the same thing we see with adults in the workplace. This is the same thing, if we're honest, we see as people interact in churches. Um, and certainly this is the same thing we see if we turn on uh, political news or talk radio. Right? We, see, we see a story that accuses, and it's only a half-truth, and it's spun. And it's, it's spun in a way that, um, that the person who is giving the story uh, wants to change your mind, make you believe something. This is the charge that they bring against Jesus. They're trying to cast him in the light of an insurrectionist against Rome, somebody who is there against the Roman authorities. And they ask Pilate to kill him. They accuse him. They lie about him, and they dare him to defend himself. So what does Jesus say? Does he point all of this out? Does, does he show the, how they have lied about him, how they have been plotting to destroy him for some time? and how with ill intentions they have been mistreating him. This is Jesus of all people. He has done nothing wrong. He is the one person in all of history who is truly innocent. And not just of this charge, but of any charge. What does Jesus say? He simply looks Pilate in the eye and says, you have said so. Right? You have said so. This answer, on one hand, affirms that what they have said is technically correct, right? He is king of the Jews. He is, in fact, king of the Jews, but not in the way that they think. The answer also implies that it is you, right? It is Pilate. It is the scribes, the elders, the chief priests who have trumped up this charge, and the blood is on their hands. Beyond this, Jesus remains silent. He doesn't say a word. Verse 3 says that the chief priests accuse him of many things. They continue to lie about him, and he does not say a word. He does not honor their accusations. He does not defend himself. Jesus remains silent. In the face of injustice, Jesus did not open his mouth. This kicks hard against our sense of justice, right? Against our sense of right and wrong. How easy is it for us to get into a defensive mode when things are said bad about you? When someone is spreading false rumors about you? When someone assumes wrong motives for the things that you have done? When they are spreading lies about you? What is our normal reaction? Right, Instantly, our normal reaction is to grab them by the throat and slam them out of nowhere. Right, That is our we, we just, it, it wells up within us. We are angry. And this is about small, trivial things, right? We are not on trial for our life. Jesus is on trial for his life, and the slanderous lies are flying, and he is silent. All right, we reflect on the what, on the actions themselves. Jesus is brought before Pilate. He is silent. But we also need to reflect on the why. Why was he doing this? What are the reasons for this? Why is Jesus silent? Why does he not point out the lie, lies and hypocrisy? Why does he not vindicate himself? Certainly he could, right? Jesus knew that this was why he was sent. He prayed in Mark 14, crying out to the Father, because he knew what needed to come next. As we read earlier, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. This was, this was the plan from the beginning. 
He was sent to fulfill Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb he was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Even, Even though Jesus knew the horrors that were to endure, he knew what was set in front of him. He knew that... There was uh, suffering immediately in front of him. Still, he lovingly, graciously, willingly, kindly, gently, honorably remained silent. He did not refute these charges. This was his purpose. He He deliberately came to save sinners through his death. He came to take punishment for sinners. He came to take the punishment that you and I deserve. He, he, He remained silent because he indeed came to become our substitute. That leads to the second portion of this narrative we see this morning, substitution. Verses 6 through 15. Picking up in verse 6, it says, Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what should I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. As the trial proceeds, we see Pilate trying to find a way out of his predicament. He doesn't want to be here. He doesn't find fault in Jesus. He sees through their charade, but he is unwilling to step up to put his neck out to do anything about it. We know from Mark's account that Pilate's wife warns him to have nothing to do with that righteous man. Pilate recognizes, it says, the envy of the chief priest. He knows this is a bogus verdict, and he needs a clean way out of this situation. So perhaps he could appeal to the crowd. Perhaps he could say, okay, I can satisfy the guilty verdict but perhaps I can appeal to the crowd and we can release him and let him go free and everything will be okay. And his plan terribly backfires. Verse 11 says that the chief priests stir up the crowd, persuading them to ask for the release of Barabbas instead and call for the crucifixion of Jesus. They stir up this raucous crowd to call for the blood of an innocent man. At the same time, the acquittal of a murdering insurrectionist. The very crime that Jesus is accused of of committing, rising up against Roman authorities, of this crime, Barabbas actually is guilty. Innocent Jesus is condemned. Guilty Barabbas is set free. This is what happened. This is the what of the narrative. They declared Jesus guilty. They scourged him. They delivered him for crucifixion. Barabbas, meanwhile, they set free. This is the what. But we need to recognize the why. We have to see the sick irony in this passage. There is no clearer picture of Jesus' substitution in the Bible. We see Jesus sentenced to death 
on a cross in the place of a sinner. Christ is innocent and condemned. The sinner is guilty and he has shown mercy. One commentator said, the sovereign providence and plan of God could not be more clearly on display. Right, so substitution of an innocent one for the sins of another is not a new concept here. It is not a new concept in the New Testament, right? We see back in the Old Covenant, the sacrificial lamb as an atonement for sin. The death of an animal, the blood of a lamb was required as a substitute, as a payment for the sin of the people. They were required to make a sacrificial offering to the Lord, and this was to atone for sins before a holy God. When Jesus come on to the, comes onto the scene, we see this imported immediately, right? John the Baptist says, says uh, it says that John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb, of the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the true and perfect sacrificial Lamb. He is the one who is the great substitute. He has stepped into the place of sinners. He has taken the wrath that sinners deserve, and he has in turn set the guilty free. More than that, we need, we need to, to bring this home to us. This is not just about Jesus dying in the place of Barabbas. That literally happened. That is historically true. We need to bring this home to us. We are those sinners. We are guilty like Barabbas, violating the law of God and deserving death. We are guilty. You are guilty. Like the chief priests, envious liars, spitting in the face of the Almighty We are guilty. You are guilty, like the fools in the crowd, shaking your fist at the one who has come to love us. We should all be identifying with the guilty here. One writer rightly said, unless you see yourself standing there with the shrieking crowd, full of hostility and hatred for the holy and innocent Lamb of God, you really don't understand the nature and the depth of your sin or the necessity of the cross. He elaborates further, that's who we should all identify with. Because apart from God's grace, that is where we would all be standing. And we're only flattering ourselves if we think otherwise. As we reflect on this Good Friday, we recognize our place in this story. We are not the heroes. We are the guilty. We are the ones who need a substitute. Jesus humbly stood silently as accusers mocked him. And he voluntarily became a substitute for sinners. And this leads to the culmination of this morning's passage, Jesus' suffering. Suffering. Starting again back in verse 15. It says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released from them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Jesus is scourged. This is a horrible Roman practice where a man is beaten with a leather whip 
that has lead or bone embedded in it. This leaves the body of the victim shredded. This leaves his back open and bleeding. And Jesus endured this. He's then beaten and mocked by the battalion. He's dressed up in faux royal clothing as a sick joke. A crown of thorns is rammed into his skull and he is beaten with a mock scepter. They bow before him, paying uh, fake homage to him. Jesus endures this. This is, this is physical. This is humiliating. Jesus endures this. But, but notice Mark spends very little time focusing on the physical suffering. He simply mentions then they led him out to crucify him. He, he doesn't spend a lot of time on the specifics of the physical suffering because there is something far worse happening. There is something far worse in store. Verse 21. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would have destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Right? Jesus is led outside of the city, outside of the camp. He is given a heavy cross to bear on his beaten and bloody back. This requires help as he cannot do this by himself in his weakened condition. He is then nailed to the cross. He is lifted up in the air. He's likely stripped of all his clothing. This loving, good, and merciful son of God is executed alongside two criminals, both of whom join in with the crowd in reviling him. Jesus is beaten. He is mocked. He is humiliated. He suffers, and he endures this. Again, Jesus is suffering a horrible physical death, but this is not the worst of it. This is not why he was sweating like drops of blood in the garden the night before. The suffering, the physical suffering, is not why he cried out to the Father to take this cup from him. He endured the physical suffering, but it was not the worst of it. Verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and lifted a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus endured much more on the cross than physical suffering. Certainly, certainly crucifixion was horrible, and certainly the physical suffering was great. But, but Christ doesn't stand alone in the physical suffering. Right? We see martyrs suffer similar or worse deaths in history. Even some of Jesus' own disciples died in a similar manner. 
right? We see, according to historical records, Peter was crucified, but insisted that it was upside down um, because he did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as Christ. The, the, the physical death, gruesome and brutal as it was, is not the worst of what happened. On the cross, Jesus suffered under the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These familiar words from Psalm 22 highlight what happened as he hung there on the tree. The Father poured out his righteous wrath against sin. He did not pour it out on the guilty. He poured it out on an innocent man who stood silently as he was falsely accused. He poured it out on a substitute for sinners. He poured his wrath out on the Son. Jesus, the perfect God-man, hung on the cross, and he endured hell with a final cry. He drinks the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. This is the what, but we need to recognize the why. Why did Jesus remain silent? Why did he stand as a substitute? And why did he suffer unimaginable suffering? Why did he take a hell for sinners? Why did he do all this? Second Corinthians says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died so that sinners could be reconciled to God. Humans, people, Rebels against God have no hope at all but for the redemption found in Christ by the grace of God. He has purposely gone to the cross with the intention of glorifying the Father by justifying the unjust. Paul unpacks this in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, in whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. This is why Jesus was silent. This is why Jesus acted as a substitute. This is why Jesus endured suffering. This Good Friday, we look to him afresh in repentance and in faith as the true and perfect king, the one to whom we owe everything. Mark concludes this portion of scripture uh, in verse 38 and 39, says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The curtain of the temple which separated God from man was torn by God from top to bottom. Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus paid our penalty. And there is no further sacrifice that is required. Jesus, who was first heralded in Mark 1.1, 1, 1, in the opening verse of the gospel, is finally recognized here in chapter 15 for what he truly is, the Son of God.
Mark 15, we see an unjust trial against a perfect king, a sinner set free, and the wrath of God satisfied. Jesus died for sinners, for all those who would look to him in repentance and faith. As we reflect upon these things, let us not go from here without responding to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we come together in gratitude and thankfulness. We come together as repentant sinners in need of a substitute. We come together recognizing that without you, without Christ's sacrifice for us, we have no hope. But because he has died, because he has taken the righteous wrath against sin because he endured hell, we can be reconciled to you. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you. We look forward to Sunday where we celebrate the glorious resurrection where Jesus overcomes sin and death. And we look forward to life everlasting with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.